Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania. My name is Megan Shoffrey. I'm a filmmaker and a film student at Edinburgh University. And I'm Stuart Nash, filmmaker, educator, and director of the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, we're going to preview our May through August programming. Our guest is Todd Scalise, visual artist and founder of Hieroglyphics. And our roundtable discussion will be continued from last week. We'll be discussing the struggles of being a creative entrepreneur in the Rust Belt and how to become part of the solution. All right, so our upcoming program of Film Grain was recently announced. So we're just going to give you a little preview of our entire summer, May through August, three Wednesdays a month. Again, we're at the Bourbon Barrel, downtown Erie, Pennsylvania, at 1213 State Street. Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you for that, Stu. Uh, we got a big 15 foot screen. Great buffet every night, including homemade pizzas and vegetarian options, gluten-free when requested. Couch and table service all night long, and we hope you will come out and enjoy the films. So we did a poll early this year asking our audiences what they would like to see in the summer. We asked, would you like to us to continue just bringing the greatest um, new cinema to the region? Would you like us to show classic films, foreign language films, documentaries, and the feedback was keep doing what you're doing, but put in some classics in the mix as well. So we are bringing you, the people, exactly what you asked for. We've got an awesome classic scheduled for June 12th, one of my (laughs) all-time favorites. Looking at the month of May, um, we're doing Stan and Ollie, which is... uh, about Laurel and Hardy, the famous comedic duo. So it's a new film, but, you know, looking looking at a classic story. And the introduction will be by Brian Sheridan from Mercyhurst University. I watched the trailer the other day. It looks like a really good movie. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, cast. the two of them are generally comics in a very comic sense, you know. It looked like a very nice dramatic piece. Yeah, yeah. It's about, uh, you know, kind of the real-life behind-the-scenes situation. And I wasn't aware that Hardy actually had a lot of health problems, at least according to the trailer. Yeah. So So you'll learn a lot, and great comedic duo we we don't want to forget. Standing Ollie is sponsored by Russell C. Schmidt & Son Funeral Home Incorporated. Thank you so much to them. Our May 8th film, which I'm also very much looking forward to seeing on a big screen. I have not seen Free Solo, which was the Academy Award winner this year for Best Documentary. Have either of you seen Free Solo? I have not seen Free Solo, but I do know the cinematographer is the... Chan, Jimmy Chan, maybe? Jimmy, okay, Jimmy, all right, sorry. And he did Maru yes. along with his other two buddies, which was completely intense. We showed that at the Art Museum yep. when we did our film series there. Yeah, so they know what they're doing. Yep. And they're just as, as crazy as oh uh, these climbers. So the story of Free Solo is essentially climbing by yourself without a rope let me just say that again by yourself without a rope and the wall they call it a wall but um you know this is a ridiculously sheer dangerous el capitan el capitan 900 meter vertical face yeah vertical (laughs) so imagine the type of person that does this for a living for fun for life and imagine being someone dating a person like that, that every time 
they're going up. They are putting themselves at risk and they know it. And so it's, it's a great look behind the scenes of the person and also of this feat that has never been done before. I think they like adrenaline. I think they like adrenaline. And they actually take him in before he does it and they scan his brain um, before to see if there's any irregularities there. Wow. And I will, I will save the rest yeah. of the story for checking it out. But I highly, I mean, I recommend every movie that we show. But we haven't got into documentaries too much at our new film series. I think this is a very accessible one. Um, and the writing on, on these first few films um, is, is good for family, I believe, it as won well. won an Academy Award. Yeah. It's got to be good. All right, and then May 15th is our classic Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid 50th anniversary, one I have never seen on oh, a big screen. Okay. Well, you've seen it, though, right? Yes, <laughs> I've never you. seen on a big screen, though. <laughs> okay. And it's a film that I think will be a lot of, lot of fun to revisit. Yeah, that's a great one, too. Yeah. Great duo right there. That's Absolutely. like the, uh, who would you even compare them to nowadays? I don't Clooney know. Clooney and Pitt? Yeah, I don't something know. something like that. Yeah, <laughs> Clooney and Pitt. That would yeah. probably be your best yeah. comparison. But yeah, yeah, Old Blue Eyes and Robert Redford. I love this movie, okay? Yeah. But I'm not crazy about the soundtrack. Okay. I don't know. It's something about B.J. Thomas, and, and I don't know. I just I do, that song. Just I wish they could have swapped that song out. But again, didn't that song win Best Academy or Academy Award? I believe so. Yeah, I believe so too. Yeah. Then the month of June is Burning, which is a film from Korea. That I've, I've said this each of our nights at at Film Grain that uh, more than any film that I saw in 2018, this one is in my head stuck to it's like peanut butter on the brain and i cannot get its chilling effect out of my head i highly recommend i know that everyone listening to this sadly has not heard of burning but it starts off feeling one way and by the end of it it really uh takes you on eye-opening journey and you kind of then re-question everything that you've just watched earlier in the film dun 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 <laughs> and then Stu on June 12th we have the 75th anniversary of Double, Double Indemnity. Indemnity great great probably I would say one of my all time favorite film noir dramas you're uh, a big fan of film noir I am especially the classics I mean because this was done in a time when it's like this was the model this was the art form at the time and uh, it's a 1944 film. It stars Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Of course, everyone re remembers Fred McMurray from My Three Sons. So if you saw My Three Sons first and then saw this, you'd probably get a weird feeling about this guy. the dad <laughs> from My Three Sons. But it's a great, it's a great, it's, this is the birth of like fast talking women and, you know, smoking on camera and, and just, just all those things that just was, you know, cool about film noir. Uh, and of course, this was directed by Billy Wilder, who again, great director from the 40s. He's got tons of stuff under his uh, resume. Yeah, it'll be nice to showcase some of his work. Yes, for very sure. cool, very cool. And the introduction's also going to be done by our friend Brian Sheridan. Um, so good, good to have him involved as well. So that's June 12th, June 19th. We're doing Boy Erased, um, and our sponsor is the Greater Erie Alliance for Equality. It is Pride Month in June, so this, of course, a uh, very important subject matter 
to be discussing in Boy Erased. This stars Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe. Joel Egerton directs that, too. Yes. And Joel Egerton is just like, I don't know, he's he's a very talented director who's coming up. Not even talented director, but he writes, he, he, actor, he acts, he's just done lots of great stuff coming up. Losing, he did The Gift. He did The Gift, he did he... Bright with uh, Will Smith. Really? Yeah. Oh, he I did uh, the Charlize Theron uh, gringo one. Okay. Uh, which, again, they're kind of cheesy, but they're definitely well-produced movies, and they have entertainment value. What do you do before The Gift, though? I feel like we're um, missing, like, a, a big highlight. Yeah, we are. Gift, Monkeys, The List, and Jacette Bill? Jacques. Direction? Yeah, that's for director. All right, then we get into July. We're taking the first week of July off because there's a holiday going on there. July 10th, 15th anniversary of Mean Girls. So fetch. fetch. Can't wait. It's not going to happen, John. <laughs> fetch isn't happening. I like how John and Stu have more comments about Mean Girls than Meg. Do I you like do mean, love girls? mean Girls? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I've watched it about a million times. All right. Nice. It's like on TV every day. Oh, really? Yeah. So are you telling people not to come? No, come see it on the big screen. You should come, <laughs> for sure. But I remember, like, any time I was sick in high school, yeah. it's like, oh, Mean Girls is on again. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So. Can you recite it, like, line for line, word for word? Do you guys have any movies like that where you know mm. start to finish? Yeah? Godfather. If I was, like, watching it. Okay. But not just, like, yeah. all right, let me start. <laughs> for me, it's Monty Python and the Holy Ugh. Grail. I can, I can say that from... Horrible. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> All right, July 17th, then we have Gloria Bell with the amazing Julianne Moore. July 24th, trying another documentary. This one as well, fantastic. Big surprise. The Biggest Little Farm really touched me in my heart. Another one that's really accessible um, to families. Anyone that can, cares about uh, sustainable living and farms and wants to see how much we need to appreciate the struggles of being a farmer in the modern world. August 7th is our only title that we're still negotiating, so it's a potential that'll have to be shown later, but we're aiming for High Life, Robert Pattinson, directed by Claire Denis. So happy to be showing um, her work. August 14th, another documentary, Apollo 11, which ties in really nicely with uh, First Man, which we showed in February with that Ryan Gosling. Um, yeah, Apollo 11 features uh, IMAX footage that has never been seen before. And August 21st, we end on Destroyer, Karen Kasuma's new film with Nicole Kidman. So we've got a couple Nicole Kidman hits here this summer sponsored by chills productions so as per usual a lot of these films did not make it to our single multiplex here in northwestern pennsylvania this is the only time you're going to get to see them on a big screen and some classics that you can revisit so again please join us wednesdays at the bourbon barrel you can find our schedule online at film society nwpa.org and we still, for a couple more weeks, have a summer pass discount available where you can book your table or couch seats for the entire summer. And if you're unable to make some of the screenings, your pass is transferable to a friend. So take us up on this offer and save yourself over $50.
Okay, we're now joined with Todd Scalise, visual artist and founder of Hieroglyphics. How are you doing today, Todd? Hi, Stu. Thanks for having me on this morning. So let's start off our conversation here. Todd, for our listeners out there, give me a little bit of background on yourself. Well, you know, I'm originally an Eriite. Um, I'm a professional artist and uh, founder of Hieroglyphics and currently a Clark Hewlings Fund Arts Business Accelerator Fellow. You know, my career in art started a long time ago. I went to school in Italy to study painting. And after um, several years of kind of moonlighting as a painter and working in advertising uh, and also teaching at the university level, I came to the conclusion that I didn't want to be um, an artist locked away in this studio. I wanted to be able to figure out a way to um, have my creativity benefit others. So I formed a company uh, that specializes in creative placemaking, which is a fancy term for public art. And um, I create for communities, and I help raise the awareness of communities through large-scale public projects. You're from Erie. Where'd you go to high school? Tell me a little bit about your college experience, too. Um, I went to high school at Mercerhurst Prep, which is really a great foundation for me. I learned how to draw and it was pretty advanced for a community. And then I ended up going to Tyler School of Art, Temple University in Philadelphia for undergrad. From there, I went to, I studied uh, one year in Rome, Italy. I studied painting there, kind of just traditional painting. And then I was able to go to Boston University for grad school. And how would you say your uh, artwork has evolved since you, you know, started out? Or like what, I guess, also, and who's one of your major influences um, that perhaps took you in this direction, perhaps a mentor from high school or college? Well, you know, I studied, um, like I said, at Mercier's Prep, and I would say Jamie Borowitz, Marietta Maffe. Uh, they were probably the first two primary influences that really steered me in the right direction. I'm really grateful to have them as instructors, and um, early on they were really responsible for getting me to college and into an art program. Correct me when I speak wrong here, but uh, you started out initially as line drawing. Is that correct? Is that what the terminology would be? Because I have one of your uh, uh, pieces hanging at my house. It's St. Peter's Cathedral. Um, but what was that style yeah. called? Because I know you mar- you switched from that, and I don't think you do that sort of stuff as much anymore. Explain to me a little bit about your uh, your evolution. Well, that's, that's great that you have that piece. Um, okay, so that's called pen and ink. And yes, when I was in high school, I did a lot of pen and ink renderings of buildings and um, kind of, you know, your typical, it's funny, like, Yuri has this history of pen and ink drawing, you know, there's Jim Sable, there's a couple other people that really were doing that, and so, I, yeah, I started off doing that, but those, um, those line drawings, those pen and ink drawings were really my first commercial experience trying to make something to sell, and, um, you know, trying to take that capital, whatever, however little it was, and try to bring it into something else. Um, since then, it's funny that you mentioned because, you know, sometimes uh, things don't change that much. I've done a lot of different types of art, but, you know, it always comes back to this really primary black and white graphic style, which is um, seen at the, you know, Miri Art Museum Annex Stairwell, which is a, a, a four-story black and white drawing that I created in 2012. So it's funny how sometimes you don't ever really get too far away from your history. And um, it's funny that you bring that up because I really haven't thought about that piece in maybe 20 years or so. Right. Well, we've known each other for, what, almost maybe 30 years now? I mean, I'm like 
ballpark yeah, here, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been yeah. a while. Yeah. So you just you did just mention your uh, community-based art, referring to your EMA Annex Room 33. You've done some work in, and I think at uh, Edinburgh University at Compton Hall. Talk to me a little right. bit about power of community-based art. Well, the com- the power of community-based art is is multifaceted. For for the artist, the artist gets out gets to work outside of their studio. And for a number of years, um, I was your traditional artist trying to make a vision in my studio alone. And thankfully, I was also, um, by necessity, working in advertising to support myself. And I realized that there was a different direction in advertising that I really liked. I was working with clients. I was working with people who needed creativity for a certain purpose. So I ended up kind of integrating that into my studio practice. I got myself out of the studio and basically into business and into market. Um, So the importance of doing community-based work is, you know, for the artist, the artist gets to actually have a problem to solve for the benefit of of the community, not just for themselves. Um, The benefit for the community is that they get beautification, they get to raise their awareness. Um, they get to tell their story. Um, and then there's some, some real good mechanicals that go along with it. They get to merchandise their story. Um, they get to show it to other communities. They get to communicate with this story. Um, they get to get earned media from that story um, and ultimately promote from that story. So um, there's a lot of different components to doing community-based artwork. Would you say this is the wave of the future or say like a new model design for artists that they can help get exposure and income or, uh, I mean, it definitely sounds like a better model than painting, you know? I agree. I agree. It it is a new model and it's a new model because communities now are understanding that art has the power to attract, but, um, this isn't a new formula. You know, if you go back to the Sistine Chapel ceiling or the statue of David, those are the reasons why those pieces of art were created. They weren't just created for art's sake. They were created to create an attraction. Um, so, um, you know, there's these new economic models now that communities are, are beginning to integrate that include art because it's proven that art is a curiosity. Uh, people are always fascinated by creative endeavors, and people want to create. You know, we have to understand we're creations, therefore we want to create and uh, that's that's a universal. Everyone is, at some level, fascinated by that. So it's, it's a really great economic driver, and something that I found when I was working in Erie uh, under hieroglyphics, um, I was in a community that had tons of need, and that one little driver of, of community-based art was very um, useful for a lot of different applications. Specifically, I'm talking about maybe like the Mercier's Prep mural project. Mercier's Prep um, approached me to design a mural with their students for the facade of their school so they could talk about how good their art program was. And people already knew it was a good program, but they had nothing. The school didn't really have a ton to show for it. Now they have this giant 8,000-square-foot mural project to really demonstrate, hey, we really are serious about the arts. We have a long history in this community of supporting the arts and generating great talent. And here is this giant project to demonstrate that. Now, 
the, the economic portion of that is, is that every time they're talking to a donor or a funder, it's much easier for that donor or funder to write that check because there's a clear example of, of what's being discussed. And that's the power of doing community-based projects is that it's, it's a demonstration of creativity that people can respond to. Well, as far as in my book, you're one of Erie's top artists and uh, creative entrepreneurs that have gotten a lot of recognition uh, nationally and internationally, I would say. So with your journey and starting here in the Rust Belt, talk to me about why you made your move to Santa Fe, why you're expanding. It's a couple of facets here I want to talk about, but one is I know Erie does have its limitations. Perhaps we can discuss that. And then, you know, I love the desert, so I know Santa Fe is a pretty nice place. So talk to me about that, too. I came back to Erie in 2010, and by 2012, I had my first prototype project at the Erie Art Museum with the Annex Stairwell, and I had about $40,000 from that project to start a business. And so I operated, I started operating hieroglyphics about 2012, up until uh, um, recently in Erie. Erie was a really good place to, to begin a business. There was a lot of resources there. I was a member of the Startup Incubator in Edinburgh, so I got some real basic training because I, I really don't have much business training, um, but I have a you know a passion and a drive to create, so I just applied that passion to schooling myself in business. So, you know, Erie is a real fertile place to begin things, um, especially prototype projects and ideas, and like I said before, Erie has a a massive need for creative um, energy and creative output. So the market is is open if you if you if you care to see it. My move back to Santa Fe has a lot to do with my history with Santa Fe. I had spent three years in Santa Fe before I moved back to Erie. Did a number of projects. Um, I was struggling to kind of get my studio business off the ground, and I ended up doing uh, creating Dennis Hopper's Lifetime Achievement Award which was a really great experience and I kind of understood then that I had the potential to create high-end artwork. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily gone from Erie. I'm just now switching my home base to uh, a market that's um, a little bit more temperate in climate and has a bigger um, support base for creative art. Yeah, I forgot about the Dennis Hopper Award. That was really cool. Um, so, but Thanks. two more things here for you. What advice would you have for the local creative entrepreneurs that are starting their journey here in the Rust Belt? Well, I would say, you know, while you're in Erie, take advantage of the resources in Erie. And there are a lot of them. Um, you know, there's the Ben Franklin. There's a lot of really good things going on between the Ben Franklin and Erie Arts and Culture right now. There's this startup um, creative contest where they're giving away $50,000 for uh, creative endeavors. I think that's really awesome. That doesn't exist in all the communities. And so I would say if you're in Erie now and you, you have your eyes set on um, – furthering your career and benefiting others with your creativity, then there's there's resources. Um, um, I would also say, you know, at the same time, part, build partnerships outside of the region. Um, I had been doing this for years and making partnerships all over the country through the Internet. And uh, I would also say, you know, at the same time, not to contradict myself, begin to think bigger than Erie because this culture is huge. And there's a lot of demand in a lot of cities like Erie. And uh, Erie's a great example of a city that's beginning to come up, but it's struggling, just like any other city in that situation would do. So um, as you build your model and as you figure out your model, you can then apply it to different communities that have the same situation. Because, uh, you know, Erie's not that unique. Erie's um, part of a, a new class of cities that's beginning to come up. 
And so there's a lot of work for creative people in that realm. Well, that leads me right into my next question here, and then we're going to get into the roundtable. And I want you to think about this for a second, but advice for the city itself. Like, if you were to approach the city of Erie in regards to supporting independent artists in the area of improvements, what they could do, because you've been there, you've seen it, you've experienced it in the region, what would you have to say to those people, you know, running the city? Well, I would say first thing on my list is work on retention first. Because there's plenty of talent in Erie. Often Erie has like an inferiority complex. It often looks outside of itself when really, in fact, all the answers are within Erie. Um, and I, I've seen this a number of times just with um, you know, jobs going to uh, outside uh, people in, in arts nonprofits, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, Erie is, is at some point has to see itself as a unique place and with unique talent and a unique situation that's going to have to have unique solutions. Um, I would also say, um, you know, and on that note, invest in your own first. Um, again, try to retain all the talent you can. For every um, five people that leave Erie that have talent, there's only one coming in. So that is the current situation. So I'd say, you know, um, Erie should. I, I never hear about Erie trying to retain what it already has. I only hear about Erie going outside of itself, trying to find more of what it doesn't have. Another big thing, too, is I think, you know, at some point, Erieites have to hold leadership accountable for the appearance of the city. Now, when you live in Erie, you don't really understand that it doesn't look that great, especially downtown. But it's really an eyesore. And, um, and I'm not talking about the amazing and beautiful all the time. I'm talking about the, the built environment really has been mismanaged over decades. And so I think the city of Erie at some point has to address that because that is part of the retention and attraction problem that the city of Erie has. Um, it just doesn't look good. People don't want to be a part of that. And businesses don't want to be downtown because of that. And that's a major, major hurdle that needs to be solved in the next decade or so. Let's start our roundtable discussion here because we're going to be joined with Megan and John here also. Um, and sure. uh, let's just keep focusing on, you know, challenges of being a creative entrepreneur in the Rust Belt section. And feel free to jump in, guys, anytime yeah. you want. Uh, I was just going to ask if we could just backtrack just a little bit, Todd. Um, when you were talking about, you know, art attracting, I think this relates to what you were just saying downtown. Do you find that the community at large, in your experience, understands the power of art attracting and is that why either you or the Erie Art Museum you know that was your first big community-based project did you approach them first by design or did they approach you first by design because you felt they're already in the art space and the arts community you know was was that why you wanted to start with that project first as opposed to you know maybe more challenging clients first or did you approach other places first and it didn't work out and the art museum was just the first one that happened to work out the, actually the art museum approached me when i came back from europe in 2010 and the discussion was hey we have uh, uh, a need to, for beautification um because um in 2012 we're going to have the pennsylvania governor's awards for the arts at our location and we need to kind of like do something 
And so they gave me about two years to figure out what to do, um, where to do it, and how to build a business model around it. And that's when I was at the startup incubator in Edinburgh. They were helping me build the business model so I could repeat the success of the Erie Art Museum and its stairwell project. Um, so that's how that all came about. But I would say 95% of my projects, um, all in Erie or elsewhere, come from me perceiving a need for beautification, me approaching the client with a proposal, me knocking on that door, getting through to the right people and developing a business strategy with my art for that client. Um, I rarely do projects that are uh, called for entry. Um, it just never really works out. Um, I have a certain knack for just seeing a need and trying to fill it with creativity. Where did you learn, um, you know, kind of these these business tools that you have, you know, to, to be able to do those first approaches and pitches? Did you just kind of figure it out on your own? Were there um, any resources that you used locally or elsewhere to kind of, you know, get your business in order, so to speak? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I sold cutlery. I had sales jobs. Um, it's, it's funny that sounds, but that's how I got to Italy. Um, I kind of remember that. I have parents. Yeah, yeah. I, find, I think I told to your, your parents, too. <laughs> I think um, But, I, yeah. And so, you know, and I have parents who are entrepreneurs, so I've always been around the, the discussion of business and maybe a little bit more comfortable with business than a lot of artists would be. Um, and also, um, you know, just trial and error. You know, I've really fallen on my face quite a bit and really have, there's a lot of failure in, in the middle of all these great projects and um, things that have not going to work out that I've had to learn from. So I would say primarily it's trial and error, um, being lucky with, with taking advantage of some education and just, just going for it, you know, just having it to the tenacity to make things work. Have you found that the arts community itself um, is organized and generally supportive to other artists, or do you think we have areas we can improve there as well, kind of putting it back on ourselves? Well, you know, I think I think the, the support's there. I never hear a ton of negativity about art in Erie, but I don't think it's organized. And uh, one of the prop the one of the problems that Erie struggles with is that there's all these individual fiefdoms or these individual groups that don't seem to overlap or communicate. I think one of the major issues that faces the arts community in Erie is that uh, Erie's looking for the nonprofit sector to lead the charge, and that's really kind of putting the cart before the horse. What should really be happening is the nonprofit sector, meaning those granting bodies, uh, non, you know, your arts nonprofit granting bodies, should be helping individual businesses, not vice versa. And I think that's a transformation that has to take place if there's going to be more creative entrepreneurship in Erie, because otherwise the resources are minimal. And then in my case, um, at a certain point, um, you know, resource, you know, greater people end up leaving Erie. Do you feel maybe it's because of the resistance to change and that the region just doesn't like to change? Maybe. Maybe there's a little bit of that. You know, Erie is, um, you know, I think Erie has a lot of innovative um, qualities, and I I like Erie because it has a lot of really uh, tenacious people, and it's a it's a tough environment, much more so than a lot of other areas in the, in the country. And I like that about um, about Erie, the self starter history. You know, you have to understand Erie is built on 
uh, industry and self-starters. And so it's, it's kind of ripe in that. But I think at the same time, there's a provincial attitude prevailing area that kind of um, doesn't like change in a sense. Uh, but change is inevitable. And so you might as well just kind of get on on that tip. And there's no better group of people that are used to change and used to being agile in the business uh, community than, than the creative people. Well put, well said. Um, you mentioned like wanting to, or thinking that retainment is really important in Erie, um, retaining like artists and everything here because people leave. Um, what kind of advice would you give to the city about trying to keep like art students in the area rather than when they graduate like they want to leave because they don't see opportunity here? Well, going back to the example that I said about the Ben Franklin um, partnering with Erie Arts and Culture in this um, startup um, contest, this $50,000 contest, there needs to be a lot more activity like that. Like if there were financial resources for people to start their own creative enterprises in Erie readily available, um, I think that's a very, very good investment. I'm going to share a fact here. Um, you can find this on my on the Hieroglyphics Facebook page um, that, you know, art is really big business, but few communities see it that way. And I think if Erie really understood that, um, you know, it's just not tech or industry that could be big business, but creative industry could be really big business in Erie that would help. Um, the art sector contributed uh, $763 billion to the U.S. economy last year, which is more than agriculture or transportation. So I, I think if our city officials saw it in that way, which is okay to see things in financial terms, it's how everything starts to change, um, they would probably think um, twice about um, investing all their money in tech or industry or um, trying to attract businesses from the outside. There's big business readily available on the inside is my point. Do you have, when you're driving down like certain corridors of, of you know, downtown and surrounding areas, do you ever like, you know, have a fantasy envisioning um, like community-based art kind of lining, lining the walls? I know we see a little bit um, outside of uh, like the 12th Street corridor now. Um, there's little flourishes here and there, but you know, what is your, your fantasy for, you know, entering Erie and what you would see there that would really, you know, do us do us a lot of good towards towards these the twelfth street goals, corridor, yeah. that's definitely a an issue that needs yeah. to be dealt with. Yeah, I would say the twelfth street corridor is is um, pretty oppressive when you go through there and I can only imagine a uh, a CEO of a business that wants to move to Erie seeing that and thinking twice about their employees experiencing that every day. Um, there's also, you know, the overpasses on 14th Street, you know, Sassafras, Peach, French, and State. Um, those are those are eyesores, and no one wants to park around that environment. And it has been proven that, you know, those eyesores are preventing that area of town from really coming up. Property values are fairly low, which is a good time to buy, but it's not a good time to develop. And so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to be said about visual appearance. And, you know, with the amount of talent in Erie, you could employ all the artists in Erie to really reface uh, the community in the next, say, seven years. And we could have a, you know, very attractive community. But um, in order for that to happen, those artists also have to get into business. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, Erie doesn't see... Um, its visual appearance as being a problem, and the artists don't see themselves as businesses. So nothing gets done. 
Right, and let me just uh, just state too that although the 12th Street corridor is not visually appealing, there are businesses in I would have heard last I heard 95 percent of the structures because oh, yeah. a lot of people get the impression yeah, yeah. that these are just empty, you know, factories, old factories, but that's not the case. So we're sure. we're talking about beautification, presentation, here. right? Which is even a, a better reason to beautify. And you know, some of those businesses probably don't think about um, the visual appearance of their buildings. Maybe there needs to be a little bit of, um, you know, that that great role for an artist and designer. Yeah, that's a really good point, Todd. Looking at um, other areas, like we had Jennifer Dorek um, on the program last week, and she said, you know, they're looking at a lot of work again on the on the Bayfront. And wouldn't that be a great opportunity, you know, to to make part of the conversation when there's new development as well, um, the arts and attracting people to the area and the beautification? I agree completely. I think uh, for all new building uh, projects or any anything that really has a high traffic, there needs to be one percent for the arts. And if the city got behind that and mandated it, you'd have a, a much better looking community. Todd, in a lot of your pieces, you definitely recall the history of a region. How about using that as well in these public spaces to, you know, tell the story of a region and, you know, kind of maintaining that in the fabric of a city as well, I think is very important. I agree, and Erie's a great example. We're no short of history. That's one awesome thing about that region of the country. It's got tons of history and tons of parallels. And it is one thing that kind of unites everyone. And um, that's not a new technique. That's a technique that was used all throughout the Renaissance for all that public work. And it's a proven driver um, in communities. And so history is a really, really big part of it. And um, almost every one of my projects has some sort of historical component to it. Todd, I, I hope we haven't haven't lost you for good here in Erie. Um, your, your work is unique and beautiful and recalls our history and uh i i urge everyone i mean you know when you're looking at a hieroglyphics piece for sure get out there in the community and check out uh these places that we spoke of do you have some stuff coming up that you want to tell us about give our listeners some information about where they can find more information about your work well you can find me on social media hieroglyphics or you could, um, you know, go to hieroglyphics.com. Um, the thing that I'm working on right now is that I'm a student in the Arts Business Accelerator Program from the Clark Humans Fund. And so I'll be spending the rest of the year uh, developing the new platform for my business and uh, check it out um, as I progress. Great. Thank you so much. Cool. You thank ready? you, guys. Yeah, thank you, Todd. Well, Todd Scalise, thank you for joining us today. Again, Todd is a visual artist and founder of Hieroglyphics. He's currently stationed out in Santa Fe. Again, Todd, thanks again for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you for having me. So Todd Scalise had mentioned the Ben Franklin Technology Partners Challenge Grant, which we advise all local artists and entrepreneurs to take advantage of. For more information about that, you can check our show notes at the bottom, and you can also... Uh, log on to benfranklin.org for more information on that. That's been our episode. Remember, you can buy summer season tickets to Film Grain online at filmsociety.org to get your tickets for that. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all of our tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. 
This podcast is produced by Edinburgh University Center for Branding and Strategic Communication. It's part of the Northwest Pennsylvania Innovation Beehive Network.